Hello and welcome to the program. I am Luke Hunt and this is another podcast for The Diplomat. With me today is Keith Lovard. Keith is a journalist, analyst, raconteur who's lived and breathed the region and in particular Indonesia for more than 30 years. Keith, welcome to the program. Thank you, Luke. Nice to be with you. And you've got a new book out which is already getting rave reviews, although you know so many people in the industry I can't imagine anything else. But Indonesia... Dividing the Spoils, which is about unbridled capitalism and, I guess, unbridled distribution of wealth or inequality yeah, it, in the distribution. Addresses, yep. Yeah, it addresses the, the, the question of equity, what is quite severe here, as is this in so many uh, developing markets and, in fact, developed markets across the world. But it does so with the additional spice of uh, yeah, anecdotes from my 30-plus years here the people I've met who include ministers and uh, presidents and all sorts of people and incidents which uh, I hope illustrate the the growing pains that Indonesia has been through over 30 years to, to get where it is today yeah, and the, the problems that it has tended to ignore along the way. What are those problems? Well, this was written in the context of the, the president, President Joko Widodo's uh, pledge when he came into office in 2014 to uh, help Indonesia to avoid the, the so-called midlife uh, or mid, mid, midlife crisis, I don't know, I forget exactly what it's called, where developing countries get stuck. They can never actually make it up to the, the level of a fully developed economy. So they become also rams. Now, the problems I see in this, and I've been particularly interested in covering the economy over the, over the last period of my stay here, you know, multitude. Uh, on the one hand, you've got uh, a legacy of environmental neglect, which is extraordinarily expensive to, to even consider fixing. You've got the, the costs of being on the uh, the ring of fire, the, the uh, highly volatile environment where you have earthquakes, volcanoes erupting at all, at all stages. And, and then there is um, corruption, which is embedded in the system. And there's one reason why Indonesia appears to be incapable of managing the economy in any way which is really going to actually achieve the goals that the president has set. On the positive side, what it has done is started to create a social welfare system. And this happened mm-hmm. under the previous president, Susilo Bambangi And you now have quite a good health care system. You have uh, subsidies for children to go to school. And you have an awful lot more money going into village development for things like rural roads and so on. But what my argument is, is is that this second batch of, of moves that it's made, these positive moves, that can be dramatically scaled up because you're dealing with a society where 50% roughly of the population works in what we call the informal sector. Right. Um, all, the, all the attention or most of the attention has been on the formal sector where you've had this very spectacular growth over 30 years. I've seen Jakarta, for instance, mushroom into this mm. variegated city where you've got 
skyscrapers, the most modern skyscrapers. In fact, there's one, one in the middle of uh, Jakarta which has a Dali statue in, in the lobby. I mean, that's sophistication for anybody. Uh, and then on the other hand, you've got the slums and, and the, the miserable existence that an awful lot of people have to live by. Now, I see dangers in this situation and the risks. And while we know that Indonesians are the very tolerant people, there are examples where this has, the tolerance has run out. Uh, one of these times was May 98, when you had, had riots for three days, which ended up with the, uh, the resignation of Suharto. And at that stage, or during those, those riots, there were, there were clear signals of jealousy between groups. You know, the, the, the rich were targeted both then and in 96, where, where there were a smaller batch of riots over the political party. Uh, places like car showrooms were targeted. Now, these are obviously symbols of wealth. Uh, so there's a, a time may come where Indonesians get sick and tired of, of, of living in this uh, dual society and start to tear down some of the, the, the barriers. Now, I think there are ways that you can achieve that by encouraging, uh, or being more encouraging towards grassroots enterprises, small and medium enterprises, which in fact are the, the biggest employers in the Indonesian economy by far, Improving rural roads is important because it will make access to markets more uh, efficient, therefore cheaper. And at the same time, there needs to be action on the collusion that allows Indonesia to be a, a high-cost economy. How this happens is that a farmer will get, uh, let's say, for example, five cents for a piece of corn. By the time it gets to market, that will cost the consumer about 80 mm -hmm. pence because it goes through so many pairs of hands. Um, you've got at another level of society, the economy, you've got quotas which are arbitrarily placed on imports. And it's not unusual by any means. In fact, it's quite common for items like garlic to leap in price fivefold in a very short time with no real justification for, for applying these enormous tariffs on, on uh, a commodity that can be bought quite easily in China. And the reason for this, of course, is because people with, with connections to bureaucrats in a position to provide these import quotas are colluding to basically rip off the consumer. So right. the people are being forced to pay an awful lot of money for, for basic commodities simply to enrich a handful of people. And of course these people are the rich elites who are tied to uh, the bureaucracy and the government and the political parties and I would suspect the military as well. Yes, I was told by, by one woman who uh, uh, works in the sugar business and, and sugar is a, another commodity which regularly imported with very, very high duties, that it's not easy for them either. They can't simply say, okay, well, we're just going to import sugar and sell it openly on the market. It, it, they have uh, bureaucrats who come to them and say, oh, you know, my children uh, have got to start a new term in Harvard. Uh, 
oh, with the family wants to go on holiday to Algeria. These okay. are just blatant <laughs> requests for bribes. Right. Um, and this is tolerated by the government. Elements of the governments continue to encourage this sort of behaviour. So with that corruption and the, the costs of former uh, earlier disasters and so on, that makes it very difficult for the Indonesian economy to advance. Right. You mentioned the, um, well, you date the book back to uh, when Jokowi came into power. Has it improved under his tenure or has it gotten worse or is it just simply motored along as it always has? Uh, pretty much the latter. I mean, he made some some promises, but, but uh, they didn't go very far. In fact, there's this word that's sometimes used for Jacobi, which is Pachitra and in other words, making pictures. And I don't think that's generally held, you know, most people who have an insights into the way the government behaves see his government as very good paint pictures, but they're not necessarily very realistic. Right. Um, COVID, of course, has made it much more difficult, and that scotches any hopes that it will actually reach these targets of becoming the fifth most advanced economy in the world by the teetery of independence in 2045. But I doubt very much if we've ever had my focus getting here in the first place. I think a lot of those dreams, uh, particularly in Asian, uh, you know, ranging from the millennial goals and uh, the aspirations of the region have been hammered by COVID. At the same time, I think uh, the pandemic has uh, oh, basically uncovered a lot of uh, cracks in the system and perhaps exposed a lot of the governments for what they really are. Yeah, and you, you can't blame COVID for everything. Um, you can't say, oh, it's COVID, you can't do anything. These problems, other problems, need to be addressed with or without COVID. And that's what I see not happening so much. Um, I think the media is part of the problem here, or part of the the difficulty of gauging just what is going on because there's been so much concentration on COVID, dramatic though it is, that we tend to ignore developments in other areas. But who's to say yeah. whether there's been any, any progress in positive economic readjustment since the beginning of 2020? Indonesia is a powerhouse in the region and certainly within ASEAN and the ASEAN economic community was launched to uh, facilitate much more cross-border trade a couple of years ago. That has really come to a halt with the pandemic, and the pandemic, well, it seems to have put the brakes on interregional trade, and I suspect that's certainly not helping Indonesia's cause. How worthy is ASEAN proving itself, and is that adding to frustrations in Jakarta when it comes to getting goods to market and being a part of the broader region? Yeah, hard to say on that one. Uh, I'm not sure that the ABC has really altered the, uh, the landscape terribly much. Uh, what it has done, of course, is made it a lot easier for the Chinese manufacturers to import their, uh, their goods and goods into Indonesia. Right. Again, uh, I think the, the dominant factor in international trade, wherever it is with, with Indonesia, is, okay, so can we do a good deal, but can we also do a good deal that puts money in my 
sorts of examples where, where prices here are very high when there's no obvious reason for that to be so. Right. Now, with your book, I understand, and from what I've seen and read, that a lot of the storytelling is based on anecdotes. What are your favourites? Uh, sorry? Based on? Anecdotes. What are your favourite stories from your own book? <laughs> well, over a period of 30 years, or are a uh, It's a good life. One that, one, one that uh, springs to mind uh, immediately is uh, back when I was a correspondent for Asia Week, the government introduced this national car policy where it, uh, Kia sedans were to be imported from South Korea and just simply rebadged by a company uh, owned by Tommy Sato and called, you know, Indonesia's national car. So I was, I was standing up the back of the hall where this announcement was made next to a, a very well-dressed Indonesian bureaucrat. And I said to him, I said, what the uh, the driving force behind this? And he said, well, obviously, he said, Indonesia can't continue to, to import all of its sophisticated consumer goods like cars and so on. You know, it has to start producing itself. I said, yes, I can understand that, but why Tommy? And he <laughs> said, oh, that's a, that's a completely different question. <laughs> <laughs> Indonesia has 
is a regional power and it has aspirations to be greater than that. Uh, we're seeing ASEAN challenged by the new Quad Alliance. There's been the recent submarine deal announced uh, between Australia, America and Britain. And a lot of it's about the containment of China. China has been sprinkling money across the region for a long time now, and there are signs that that, along with the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, is, I wouldn't say not coming to an end, but certainly the heyday may well be over. Where do you see Indonesia sitting within ASEAN and its relationship with China? And, of course, it's probably going to be torn a little bit over its alliances uh, and deals and agreements that have been struck with other countries outside the region, like America, Australia, uh, these sorts of places? Well, Indonesia will always be important within ASEAN, because after all, it is by far the largest economy in Britain, rarely speaks for itself. Um, one of the exceptions to that rule was, of course, Myanmar, where it did try to get involved there without terribly much success. But I used to uh, teach media management to foreign ministry officials for a decade, and I said to them that you know they, that Indonesia needs to be far more outspoken on issues of soft power, and that um, it does not punch at its weight in international forums um, on defence issues, and the, the, the military is largely domestic. trumpet, so to speak, 
is that because Jakarta is just too preoccupied with the issues at home? Yes, I think so. And, and this mindset crops up all over the place. Um, remarkably and ridiculously, the fact that there remains a, a sort of national paranoia about the role of that obviously only stems back to the colonial past. Yep. But it makes no sense to continue that. You can guarantee that if you have an argument with an information about anything, that the first thing that will be said is, oh, why don't you go back to your own country? Um, you are tolerated here if you have any value for them whatsoever. But you're not encouraged to take any great part in you know, the development of society, even though in my case you've been here an awful long time. Mm. Um, now, I think that's a pity, because if you want to advance uh, as a country that wants to move out of the developing status and build a developed role, uh, you do need help from your friends, as it were. Um, and yet, they don't really want that. But of course, they want investment. Um, yep. But they don't want to be told how to do things. I mean, as you can see, it's very visible that when you're discussing something like this with an Indonesian, they immediately retreat into a shell. Um, and you know it's because you're, you're, you're a whitey. Um, you know, even though I've been here for 30 plus years, I, I know it's ridiculous to even think about taking Indonesian nationality because I will always be a white man. Right. Uh, I will never be acceptable as a genuine contributor to national development. I've covered uh, several elections there and I've worked out of the country before on other issues. I always kind of a little bit struck by the inability to get connected with the right people. The, the government's media spokesman, for example, just getting basic information, which in other countries in other countries within Southeast Asia, it's not that tricky. It's not necessarily anything nefarious. It's not like they're deliberately trying to bring you down, but there's just nothing there to kind of grasp onto. And you've, it's very much a country for what we used to call primary reporting. Yeah, true. Um, and I think this is part of this problem of, of avoidance of contact with foreigners. Um, you know, again, when Jacoby was... was came into power in 2014, one of his promises was to alter the mindset. Now, we've gone nowhere with that, mm -hmm. um, because I think this, this resistance to foreigners is just so strong that, that it's very hard to break it down. Um, given that, given the fact that the education system generally is pathetic, and you struggle to, to make connections, and again, I think that this is very detrimental to the state of the economy and the country. Mm. Right. A lot of countries are trying to talk about reopening to uh, foreign investment, tourism, uh, once the pandemic is over. They, I think a lot of them are being quite optimistic. But given Indonesia's attitude to foreigners, how is that going to impact on this going forward? I mean, I'm thinking of Bali, for instance, uh, as a tourist destination in terms of the sheer volume of people and the amount that it contributes to the local economy. With, with these sorts of attitudes, are they likely to come to the fore? How detrimental will they be post-pandemic, assuming we get to a post-pandemic phase? Yeah, well, what are your thoughts on the future? 
not too negative, slowly, slowly. There will be interest in investment. In fact, there has been a lot of um, pledges of investment over the last six months or so. Mm-hmm. In fact, one thing that was wrong with the book because the book has taken some time to actually get out. And my comments on the the, the hopes of the government to create a major electric battery industry that's shown largely to be incorrect and the country has enormous nickel deposits and, and that apparently has uh, convinced companies like Toyota and Hyundai to, mm. uh, to put their money here and there will be continued investment in the modern sector and, and tourism in Bali is another question to the sort of tourism that we had before we want a more relaxed and accommodated but not Hundreds of thousands of Westerners strewn across Kuta. Yeah, precisely. I mean, the, the, the senior minister, Luhu Banjaya, said, you know, we don't want backpackers. You have to sort of backtrack on that. You can see where he's coming from, that we don't want sort of scrubby, unwashed Western tourists. What will happen, we'll see, because of course those scrubby, unwashed tourists create a lot of jobs. They do. Um, yeah. And they're normally now, a poor run for the... Uh, for the more upper crust type uh, traveller as well. As in the backpackers yeah, go right, there yeah. first and the others will follow. Yeah, well, and, and the upper crust uh, traveller of course that spends a lot of time sort of insulated from the community as a whole. They're either, you know, shut up in their beautiful resorts or mm. you know, locked into air-conditioned limousines. But um, what I'd like to see is, is, is okay, let that for your time and good luck with the book Indonesia Dividing the Spoils and I'm sure it's going to do very well.